Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Good morning, church family. So most of you have one of these, I'm assuming. It's a cell phone. On it, you get all kinds of messages, text messages, sometimes positive, sometimes not so positive. Uh, Other times you use them to check social media, and this is the one that really hurts, but if they're not so positive, it's for everybody to see. Uh, If they are positive, you're like, yeah, post that on Facebook, put it on Instagram, put it on Twitter. Well, we are taking a look at seven churches that received letters from the creator of the universe that billions of people have been able to read. So the good, the bad, and the ugly, whether the church is doing really well or whether the church is struggling, it has been emblazoned in scripture for a couple thousand years now, and literally billions of people have had opportunity to read it. We've been taking a look at the seven different churches along a postal route, uh, traveling from the south up to the north, and then back down around to the south on the east side. Today we are at the northernmost church, a church called Thyatira. Interestingly enough, it is the smallest of the seven churches up there in the north, but it is uh, the letter that is the longest and one of the most scathing rebukes. Um, So we're going to take a look at that church, and one of the things that Jesus is going to hit really hard on is their tolerance of sin. Not so much that they're engaged in sin themselves, but that they're tolerating it in their church body. And that's a tough one because we tend to be people that want to bury our heads when it comes to conflict or when it comes to sin because we're just supposed to be nice to everybody, right? I mean, we're Christians. And so we should just be kind to everybody. Well, don't get me wrong. You can be kind and yet not tolerate sin at the same time. The the two are actually not mutually exclusive, which is something we're going to take a look at. And by the way, there's that word tolerance. How many of you all have heard that word a lot? Like especially in the last decade or so, it's all about tolerance. I heard something kind of interesting from a preacher much wiser than I that said we are to be unconditional lovers but we are not to be unconditional approvers. Think about the difference there. I can unconditionally love anybody regardless of lifestyle, background, where they've come from, what they're doing, but I do not have to unconditionally approve it. And the moment I unconditionally approve or unconditionally accept something that is sinful, that is one of the most hateful things that I could ever do for that person because it's hurting them. There's a guy named David Kinnaman. He's been the longstanding president of the Barna Research Group, if you're familiar with Barna at all, and he wrote something kind of interesting in a book that I had been reading about our young people and the direction they're going called Unchristian, how they have basically walked away from the faith because they haven't seen a lot of difference in the church from the world. And their main thought has been, why keep following Jesus when my friends and the people of the world are just like the people of the church? So David Kinnaman writes, there's a tremendous amount of individualism in today's society, and that's reflected in the church too. Millions of Christians have grafted New Age dogma onto their spiritual person. When we peel back the layers, we find that many Christians are using the way of Jesus to pursue the way of self. While we wring our hands about secularism spreading through culture, a majority of church-going Christians have embraced corrupt, me-centered theology. That's part of the reason why we study the scriptures the way we do here at New Covenant. 
Uh, I'm pretty big and our leadership is pretty big on let's go through books of the Bible verse by verse because it doesn't allow us to skip the parts that are hard. And there are a lot of parts in Scripture that are hard, but if I wanted to, as your pastor, it's not hard for me to cherry-pick verses of the Bible that just sound great and turn those into feel-good sermons so you walk out feeling happy. Well, don't get me wrong, there's some hard stuff in Scripture, but you and I should walk away from our services every single Sunday feeling encouraged and lifted up because Jesus is on the throne. He is going to bring us to a place that He has been making for us for the last couple thousand years. We're going to get to experience something far greater than this planet. And you know what the best part of heaven is going to be? I've asked you all this question before, so we'll see what you remember. It's not the street of gold. It's not the gates of pearl. It's not the 12 foundation stones with the apostles' names written on them. It's not the amazing angelic beings of the cherubim and seraphim that we're going to see. It's not those gathered around the throne. You know what the best part of heaven is going to be? It's going to be getting to be with Jesus. We're going to get to finally be with our Savior, hear Him say, welcome home and well done, good and faithful servant. That is going to be the best part about heaven, and we're going to get to be with Him forever. In the meantime, we want to grow to continue to be more and more like Jesus. And so at times what we need to do is we need to look, take a look at the mirror that we call God's Word and see what's being reflected. And where are we doing well? There are many things that I think the Lord is doing in our midst that our church and the church in Thyatira even was doing well, but then there are also things where when we take a look in the mirror, we go, oh, we might need to clean that up just a little bit. There are some things that need to be rearranged a little bit. So we're going to take a look at the church in Thyatira. Like I said, it's the smallest of the cities that we're taking a look at, those seven cities, but they've got the longest letter. We're going to take a look at their mail, and it's actually mail to us as well. And again, remember, we've got five things we're learning from each of the seven churches. By the time we're done with these seven churches in the seven weeks that we're going over them, we're going to have, have learned 35 different lessons. You're expected to remember all of them because at the end of week seven, there will be a test. There won't really, but it is good for us to gather and, and garner some different principles from God's Word. So if you would, again, just in honor of the king who wrote his word, would you stand with me as we read Revelation? It is chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, and we're going down to verse 29. We're rounding out chapter 2 this week. He writes, unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden." Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, because even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you, gang. So, again, if we're trying to wrap up this letter in one brief statement, one brief sentence, and everything else that we're going to unpack comes from this sentence, how would we word it? Well, this is the best I could come up with this week. Y'all ready? The tolerance. Again, there's our word. That Greek word is aphimai. It literally means to accept or to take in. The tolerance of false doctrine and sin in our church is going to lead to distress and it's going to lead to death. Two things that tolerance of sin will always lead to. It starts with distress, chaos, and then it leads to death. Remember, death does not always mean physically the, the flame is gone. It literally means a separation. Whereas faithfulness to Jesus is going to lead to assurance and to authority. We're going to unpack those, those very things that we just looked at right there. Those are, that's going to basically be the unpacking or the unraveling of the rest of this sermon. So we're going to begin to see a continued decline in the seven churches with Smyrna and Philadelphia being the two bright spots in those seven churches. Beyond those two being our bright spots in those seven letters, the churches seem to continue to get worse until we finally finish with Laodicea in a few weeks. Well, take a look with me again, if you would, back at verse 18. It says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira right. Now again, remember, we think that the angel is probably the head elder uh, of that church. He is the one who is keeping record and then re- and reporting back to the church what it is that Jesus is saying to him. And he says this when it comes to his character. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. What's the first thing that we learn here about Jesus? That his character spoken of here speaks to his deity, which gives him the authority to judge all things. Now, it's interesting that this title, Son of God, it's only used once in all the book of Revelation, and it's used here, and it actually identifies Jesus as being God in flesh. Now, some have read this and went, no, it says that he's the Son of God, so he must have been created, he must have been a begotten, uh, procreated being, when actually huios, ha huios, actually means in the order of or in the likeness of. It does not literally mean a begotten by. There are multiple times in both the Old Testament and New Testament that the word son of are used when somebody is not actually somebody else's actual son. He's just simply calling him son. In fact, the Apostle Paul calls Timothy his son, his true son in the faith. And all he's saying is that this is my disciple or this is one that is in the order of myself. He has the same authority that I do. So Jesus speaks of himself as being equal with God or God Almighty. And he says, because of that, I am the one who's going to judge all things. Now, again, this is the part of Jesus that sometimes we don't like. We like Jesus meek and mild. We like that Jesus died for us. We like that Jesus is bringing us to heaven. We like that Jesus is merciful. But Jesus as judge, I don't like that part. I'll tell you what, as a believer in Jesus, it is a good thing that Jesus is a judge. In fact, it's a great thing because all those evils and all those atrocities that have ever been committed with mankind crying out, when is justice ever going to be served? Jesus says, just give me time. It is going to be served. All of those nasty, wicked things that people have ever done, whether it was done to you or somebody that you loved or just a wicked and nasty thing in general, Jesus says, I'm going to judge all of it. 
Now, this is of utmost importance. Their view of who Jesus is is of utmost importance because if you just see him as a celestial Santa Claus who gives you what you want when you want it, but then you can live how you want for the rest of your life because Jesus isn't going to do anything about it, that'll radically dictate the way you live. I stole this from a seminary professor like 20 years ago, but he used to say, class the reason that theology, and we're sitting in the middle of a theology class, he said the reason that this theology class is so important is your theology will always dictate your behavior. Think about that for a moment. What is theology? It's the study of or the knowledge of God. If your knowledge of or your study of God, your belief in who God is, dictates your behavior, the question is, how big is your God? What is he capable of? I've noticed that those that believe that God truly is the creator of the universe, he is sovereign over all things, he dictates the way all things take place, have very little fear. Because they know that no matter what happens to them, it was all written in God's book before the foundation of the world. Did you know that before you were ever created, before God spoke anything into existence, he knew that you were going to be sitting here on February 12th, 2023 at New Covenant Church in Albuquerque. He already knew that. He knew the exact day you were going to be born. He knew the exact day that you were going to die or the exact day you're going to die. And he knows everything that's going to happen in between. He knows all of it. I'll tell you what, gang, if that's the God that you serve, you literally have nothing to fear. Because did you know that nothing can take you out before your appointed time? That nothing can happen to you that God doesn't already know about? Nothing surprises him? Well, we get a little bit of a glimpse in Scripture as to who Jesus is. If you want to turn to John chapter 1, you can do that if you'd rather listen uh, you can do that. But in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, John is giving a feel for his audience. Now remember, this is the same John that wrote the book of Revelation. He wants those that are listening to know exactly who Jesus is. So he writes like 20-some chapters on this is who Jesus is, and mostly on the deity of Jesus. In the very first chapter of John, he writes, in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This immediately would have taken John, John's hearers right back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You're telling me that Jesus was there in the beginning, creating, making all things? And John says, yes. Jesus, in His creativity, in His omnipotence, was making all, of thi all things. The very Jesus that you saw get nailed to a cross and rise again from the dead is the very Jesus that was there speaking all things into existence at the very beginning. That's the Jesus that you serve. This is why there are brothers and sisters around the world that are willing to give their lives up for Jesus because they know that he's the one that created them. He's the one that gave them life. Therefore, he is willing, he, they're willing to die for him. He's worthy of death. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20 says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, let me ask you, how big is your Jesus? 
Well, John's Jesus was the creator of the universe. So how big is your Jesus? Paul's Jesus was the creator of the universe who had rule and dominion over all things. That's the Jesus we serve. So when you go out and you share with people who Jesus is, even though it might cost you some friendships, it might get you some nasty remarks on Instagram or Facebook, or depending on where you're at in the world, it could cost you his life. We have to come back to a question we ask a lot around here. Is Jesus worth it? I would say absolutely. He gave me the life that I have. He allows me right now to take another breath. He allows me to formulate a sentence. But greatest of all, he allows my name, we just sang it, to be registered in heaven. All because of what he's done. That's great news. Well, like Jesus does, he starts with a commendation. He gives a positive before he gets to some of the things that need to be worked on. It's found in verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So Christ's commendation to the church in Thyatira, it's really fourfold. He says, I've seen your love, I've seen your faith, I've seen your service, and I've seen your perseverance. Now the words that he uses there in the original Greek language are all actually quite important. When he uses the word love, he says agapen, or you've probably heard it from agape. So he uses the plural version of agape. He says, I've seen your agape. Church, I've seen your unconditional love for me. Regardless of what happens around you, you still continue to love me. I commend you for that. He commends them for their faith. That comes from the Greek word pestuo. Pestuo literally means faith that comes from conviction. In other words, they are convinced of the Jesus that they serve. They are convinced that he is God in flesh. They are convinced that he's sovereign over all things. They're convinced that he rose from the dead. And that's why they have this unconditional love for him. And then he commends their service and their perseverance in the midst of their service. He says, I am so thankful that you continue to serve, that you continue to make life about me and not about self. And way to go, you're doing it in the midst of a lot of trial and tribulation. Remember, the tolerance of false doctrine and sin in our church is always going to lead to distress and death. Whereas faithfulness to Jesus is always going to lead to assurance and lead to authority. However, if you continue to look at the letter to the church in Thyatira, we get to verse 20, and then you see that scary word, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. And so what's the criticism of the church in Thyatira? It's for tolerating false teaching, idolatry, and sexual immorality. I've discovered that one often leads to the other. False teaching leads people to worship a false god, which brings them to leading a false lifestyle or a sinful lifestyle. The rebuke for their tolerance is that of false teaching and lies. Again, we see that word tolerance, and we live in a day and age where we're supposed to tolerate everything. 
You can't say there's anything as absolute truth because as soon as you say there's an absolute truth, then somebody has to be absolutely... It's hard for us to even say it, isn't it? Listen, gang, if there is an absolute truth, somebody has to be absolutely... It's okay to say that. There actually is a right and a wrong. The funny thing is we're living in a society that says you can't say that to anybody, but yet nobody lives that way. You still teach your kids there's an absolute right and wrong. At least if you're sane, you teach your kids there's an absolute right and wrong. Now, the problem is if what we're teaching isn't true for all people in all places at all times, then it isn't true. Let me give the objections and the pushback that I've heard from people. Well, some people like vanilla ice cream and some like chocolate. So you're going to say that it's wrong to like vanilla ice cream instead of chocolate. Well, yeah, actually. But that's not the point. <laughs> We're talking about objective, universal laws and truths, not personal preferences. So keep this in mind at all times when you're having a debate or an argument with somebody. We are talking about principle, not preference. God designed us with different preferences, and that's a good thing. Some of y'all do like vanilla. You're just bland. Some of y'all like chocolate. You're in your right mind. Those, those are the differences there. That's, that's preference. But then there are biblical principle. Lying to somebody else is wrong. Killing somebody else that's wrong. These are, are principles that are actually known all over the world, even in places where they've never gotten a hold of the Bible. Interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul speaks to that in Romans chapter 2. He says, look at the Gentiles who don't have the law, and yet their conscience bears witness to what is right and wrong because the law is written on their hearts. God made sure that when we were born, we were born with this thing called a conscience, and so innately we seem to know what is right and what is wrong. God put that in us to push us to himself. We would recognize that we have got a problem. Have you noticed that you gravitate towards that which is wrong most of the time? I have never had to teach my kids how to say no. It is always interesting to me to hear people say, no, you know, honestly, pastor, I think most people are born good. They just want to do good. Do they really? Because most of the time we're pretty selfish. I love to say to those people, let's, let's do an experiment. It's an experiment that I've, I've talked about before, and I think it's kind of interesting. But if I took eight two-year-olds and I put them in a room by themselves and each one of them were allowed to have a sharp pair of scissors and we just left them in there for 30 minutes, how would things turn out? Some would have phenomenal haircuts, others would be bleeding, and others would be in a corner, coward, wondering what was going to happen to them next. That's the way human beings are. And that's a pretty good description of most of society today. Put something dangerous in their hands, like sin, and see what they do with it. Now let me go back to what they're tolerating. He says, you're tolerating that woman Jezebel. Who was Jezebel? Well, she was the wife of King Ahab. She actually lived hundreds of years before John wrote this letter in AD 95. And she led many of the people in Israel to worship the false god of Baal. If you want to read about the story of Jezebel, 1 Kings chapter 16 uh, is one of those chapters. And then 2 Kings chapter 9 is another one of the chapters where you can read all about Jezebel. Now, I don't think that this lady here that's being talked about actually has the name Jezebel. She was a prophetess, and she was leading people astray. 
and she was doing it probably in the same way that Ahab's wife Jezebel did it. She would subtly, seductively, and deceptively lead people into false teaching. And that is precisely how Satan works. He comes as an angel of light, and he does it subtly, and he does it seductively, and he does it deceptively. He just comes up with a couple of things that kind of sound true, but they're massive lies. Now, again, I'm not going to get into to major details, but think about the cults of the world today. They use very similar language to biblical Christianity, but they have completely different meanings, and that's exactly how people get sucked into them. Think about some of the false religions of the world today. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Roman Catholicism all use the name of Jesus, but they're preaching a very different Jesus that actually cannot save you from your sin. Then you've got some of the religions like Buddhism and Hinduism, the Baha'i faith. They hit on some of the seductive feel-good tactics of you being able to manipulate the universe and actually get this uh, universal force or the pantheon of gods that they believe exists to actually uh, come to your beck and call if you go through the right chants or the right rituals. Or then you've got the God of atheism and evolution that basically says we are the pinnacle of all things, so therefore we are in charge. No God dictates what we do. Did you notice the similarity in all three of those types of religions that I talked about? They're all about man. Man gets the glory. Man gets the comfort. And I read it in Scripture, and I don't always like it, but too bad. It's not about me. It's all about the creator of the universe being worshipped. You and I were actually created to worship. That's why we were made. Now, here's the, the paradoxical part. When I actually stop living for myself, it's when I find the most joy and the most pleasure. It's when I live for the one that created me that I find the most joy and I find the most pleasure. I don't have to worry about a lot of things that sin will do to me. Let me take us back to the passage. Remember with Jezebel, those that were, were worshiping the God of Jezebel and what she was leading them into, what did they have to fear? Well, listen to this. First off in verse 21, it says, I gave her time to repent. Did you notice that God is always gracious? He's always gracious. I'm giving you time to repent. Stop doing it. But then here's that but again. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, that's a Greek word trying to arrest your attention, which means listen. If you don't stop, I'm going to throw you onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw in a great tribulation unless they repent of her works. When he uses the word adultery, it could mean both sexual immorality or it could mean a spiritual immorality that they are actually holding themselves out to other gods and cheating on God Almighty, who they're supposed to be in a love relationship with, remember, as the bride of Christ. So he says, I will throw you in a great tribulation, which means distress is coming. Remember, again, we talked about this last week, but if you don't deal with sin, Jesus says, I'll do it. And then he says, if they don't repent, I'm going to throw her onto a sickbed. Well, that's interesting. That word throw is that... that uh, Greek word balo, which literally means sudden or unexpected. It's just going to happen. You're not, not going to see it coming. It's just going to happen. Now, I know not many of us want to admit this, but how many of y'all have sinned before? You just kind of laugh. You don't even have to raise your hand. Just laugh at it. 
How many of you faced an unexpected consequence for your sin? Like you thought you were getting away with it, and then all of a sudden, bam, that one hurt. Well, this is exactly what seems to be happening in the church in Thyatira. They're just like, we're good. We're getting away with it. We can mess around with Jezebel's God. We can mess around with Jezebel's, Jezebel's sexual immorality. Nothing's going to happen to me. I will tell you as a pastor for about the last 21 years, in particular, I've done more ministry with men just out of appropriateness, but I will tell you that with, with the number of men, and it's been dozens, that have struggled with things like pornography, sexual immorality, the thought was always, I'm fine, I can control this. Looking at a little bit of pornography for a few minutes is not that big a deal. And it comes back to wreck families. It comes back to have kids looking at dad saying, I want nothing to do with you, I thought I could trust you. It ends up resulting a lot of times in divorce and families getting destroyed. And if we don't think that that's that big of a deal, don't forget that our churches are made up of individuals and families. What happens when the families begin to fall apart? Churches begin to fall apart, and I think that's what's happening to the church in Thyatira. We had people that were committing adultery with Jezebel thinking it's really no big deal. And what was needed was some serious church discipline. Church discipline is no fun. I have been a part of having to exercise that before, and it is no fun. Emotions are hurt. Families are hurt. The church seems to be hurt. But sometimes we have to go through the hurt before we're going to experience a little bit of healing. And I would say, let's experience that hurt rather than just pretend like something's not happening. And so why would we go through church discipline? Well, as I studied Scripture, I found at least four things. There's not in your notes, but it might be helpful to know this, that when you discipline your kids, or if we had to discipline somebody in the church, it really should always be for four reasons. One is to correct the sinner's behavior because we want them to be able to be in a place of blessing, not discipline. So one, we want to see the sinner's behavior corrected. The second thing is that we want to see the sinning believer restored. We want to see them walking rightly with the Lord again. The third thing is that it protects the family and the church. Remember, again, if somebody in our body is sinning, it never affects just that person. Sin doesn't work that way. If you ever think I can sin and it only affects me, you've been lied to and you've bought the lie. But then the fourth thing, and maybe the most important, is that church discipline, do you know it actually brings Jesus glory? Do you know why? Well, because of the first three we just talked about. His church is his bride. We want to protect it. He cares about sinning believers and seeing them corrected and restored. And when we do those things, it ends up bringing him glory. Now, this tells me that based off what Jezebel was doing, teaching is a very strong medium, which is why I say always be careful of what you're listening to from this pulpit. I say that about myself. I'm a dumb man who will get things wrong, and I will get tired, and I will make mistakes. I'm going to do everything I can every week to study God's Word diligently, to divide the Word of truth well. To present it in such a way that you can walk out of here and go, okay, I have a better understanding of who Jesus is and I'm more in love with him. But if I ever mess anything up, I would hope and I would pray that I have brothers and sisters that love me enough to say, I don't think you got that right. Or that you would check everything that is said from this pulpit, whether it's me preaching or next week you get to hear from Walt Migdahl, one of our, one of our elders. I'm going to be corrupting our youth for four days at the youth winter retreat. It's going to be great. But because of the fact that teaching is such a powerful medium, 
there is some training that, that leaders go through at this church. Every Thursday at 10.30, your pastors are meeting together and we are training through something called how to study the Bible. And we're actually having a blast doing it. Just this last week, we just took nine verses from the book of Joshua chapter 1, and we worked through an exercise together of how do you know who the audience is? How do you know who the author is? What was God trying to say? What is the context of it? What year was it being written? What was happening during that year? And all of those things are extremely important because they keep us from making the Bible say something that we want it to say. And instead, we take a look at, at the Bible for what it actually says. And when we take a look at what the Bible actually says from beginning to end, it's all about the glory of God and the growth of His kingdom, and in the midst of all that, the good of His people. That's exciting stuff. The Bible really becomes alive when you really begin to study it. We have curriculum that's being used in our children's ministry and in our youth ministry that honors and glorifies and lifts up Jesus. If you don't know what's happening in our kids' ministry, in our youth ministry, ask Melody about kids' ministry. Ask Chris Rowland about our youth ministry. It's exciting. The material that's being used in our small groups is being overseen. For a reason, we want to make sure that our congregation, our body is growing in its understanding and knowledge of Jesus. Those that are serving in positions of leadership have had to sign our statement of faith. If you haven't seen our statement of faith, it's right on our website. It's pretty long. It's like five pages long now. There were like 30 of us that got together in a room. It took us 10 weeks to hash out everything that we wanted on our statement of faith. But we are excited about what the Word of God says and who the living Word of God is. And therefore, we want to put that on paper for everybody to see it and everybody to know that this is our God who made us. This is our God who made covenants with His people that He is going to keep. This is our God who died for us. This is our God who rose again for us. This is our God who's coming again for us. Yeah, you're allowed to amen that one. We're allowed to be alive and awake this morning. In two weeks, when I come back, we're going to be taking a look at the church that's dead, which means you all are going to have to have a lot of energy. So we're going to have a good time with that. Look at verse 24 and 25. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. What's the challenge to the church in Thyatira? Hold fast. It's the same word that we've heard like two or three other times. That Greek word literally means to grasp forcibly. Don't let it go. What you've got cannot be released. Don't let go of Jesus. Now again, this is not about losing your salvation. Your salvation is Him holding on to you. You are in the most secure grip that you could ever be in. He's not going to let you go. We have a tendency to take a look at Jesus and go, you know, I really don't like what you have to offer right now, so I'm going to do my own thing. Jesus' challenge to us is don't do that. Hold fast to what you know. Therefore, again, you can be in a position of I can bless you and have you become more like myself. Well, then he gives the counsel in rounding out this passage. He says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love how he ends on a positive note almost every single time. The counsel that he gives is remain faithful. And if you do, you're going to receive authority over the nations as well as assurance of victory. 
Jesus promises us. Listen, this is a promise that Jesus makes. It's not coming from your pastor. It's not coming from any other teacher. This is a promise that Jesus makes that if you stick true, if you're truly a faithful follower of Jesus, you're going to get to reign with him in his millennial kingdom. That's an actual, literal, thousand-year reign of Jesus that's talked about in Revelation chapter 20. Again, just wait like eight short months. We're going to get there real fast. So we will before the end of 2023. Take a look at this thousand-year reign of Jesus where he's actually reigning and ruling on the earth from the throne of David, and you and I are going to get to have some authority with him. I don't know what that's going to look like. Again, there are things where I just, I wish I had more answers to give you. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Daniel spoke to it in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 12. He spoke of those that are are faithful followers of Yahweh, that they will shine like stars in the universe. And Jesus says, when you do, guess what I'm going to give you? I'm going to give you the morning star. What in the world does that mean? Well, again, I'm going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16 tells us the morning star is Jesus. So if I was to interpret this verse from what Jesus tells us of himself in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you myself. And there is no better gift to be given than Jesus himself. We're going to get to be with him for all of eternity. Gang, listen, we live in a world that tolerates sin. We live in a world that actually celebrates the very things that Jesus came to die for. So if you stand for those very things that Jesus came to die for, you will probably be hated by the world. But remember, let me go back to the quote from that teacher in God's Not Dead too. I would rather be judged by the world and be right with God than be judged by God and be right with the world. Which do you choose today? Is it right with the world or is it right with God? Only one is going to matter. Well, let me ask you, If Jesus was to come back right now, this was the day that Jesus said, I'm taking you home. Are you ready? Are you? I'm ready to go. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to go. When the king comes, all will stand in honor and worship of who he is. If you are willing to be that person that says, you know what, I want to stand for and honor Jesus today, would you just stand with me as we pray and then we'll sing one final song together? Jesus, we just come before you and we do honor you and we worship you as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords. We know that you could take us home today. And Lord, if today was that day, may we be excited and not ashamed. May we be a church that is a bunch of people that are unconditional lovers, but yet, Lord, we are not unconditional approvers. Lord, remind us of the best way to unconditionally love others, and that is to bring the good news of Jesus. Lord, what a blessing it is to have a mission statement that says we want to know you and make you known. We want to know Jesus, and we want to make Jesus known. Lord, would you help us to do that even more today? Would you help us to get to know you even better today so that we can go out and make you known even more today? Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you for who you are. It's in the name of Jesus that we all pray together. Amen. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. 
From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. Have a great week.